The Creatives with AI Podcast. Welcome to The Creatives with AI Podcast. I'm your host, David. And in today's episode, I chat with Dan Clark, Head of Technology and Innovation at the Greater Cambridge Partnership in the UK. We start off our conversation by discussing the current hype cycle around AI and how it's similar to past cycles. We then move on to how Cambridge currently uses AI to improve the day-to-day lives of its citizens. And finally, we explore the tricky balance of collecting useful data while maintaining anonymity for people just going about their day. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy this friendly conversation with Dan. The Creatives with AI Podcast, the spiritual home of creatives curious about AI and its role in their future. Dan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, David. Really good to be here. How are you doing? How are things in Cambridge these days? Yeah, good, good. Really busy, really looking forward to this conversation. Obviously, AI is something that we're thinking about at the moment. You know, it's the hot topic. So yeah, really looking forward to, to speaking to you. AI might have come up once or twice in the uh, in the daily discussions, I have to say. <laughs> yes. Actually, before we even get stuck into the conversation, it might be good. Maybe if you just gave a, a, a little bit of your background to people so they kind of understand where you're coming from. I'm the head of technology and innovation for an organization called the Greater Cambridge Partnership, delivering the city deal for the Greater Cambridge area. So that's a, a government funding stream. When the city deal was first signed and the Greater Cambridge Partnership was set up, one of the things that we wanted to make sure was that we were harnessing kind of new and emerging technology and data to really support the wider program. So we built the program from there, um, primarily focused on transport, but in in previous roles, I've you know looked at how we can support service transformation through the use of sensors and data, and you, you know we continue to do that. I think the interesting thing is that I've been through a number of hype cycles, uh, smart cities, IoT, and so really trying to at the moment work out you know where the value lies in AI and is this just another you know bit of hype or actually is there something in it that we can harness and you know really help to to transform place and and the way that we deliver services. What's your verdict on that, you think? Where do you think we are in the hype cycle? Well, there is a lot of hype. So I think we're almost on the top of the hype curve. I think, I mean, I really do think that there is something in it that could be quite transformational in the way that we've not really seen with smart cities or or IoT. Um, I think the question is how we harness it and how we harness it in a responsible and ethical manner and, you know, I think there's some big questions around that. And obviously, as a listener to your podcast, I know you've had numerous discussions about about that. But I think particularly for local authorities, that's a, a real issue because actually, you know, we don't have the skills to to really, I think, understand some of these really complex technologies. Yeah, it's a good point. And I think one thing I want to just put out there for everybody listening is, is that Dan and I know each other pretty well. We've we've worked together on a few projects over the years, and we we both are special interest group champions with in the smart cities group at a at a uh, an organization called Cambridge Wireless, and so we talk a lot about smart city and IoT and how comms factors into that and and that whole side of the world. So we we actually know each other quite well and talk about this quite often. So. I just wanted to put that in because if it, it, I'm sure it will come out in the conversation somehow that if we start going down some rabbit hole and talking about something that maybe no one knows, that's probably why. <laughs> <laughs> so what is 
uh, are you doing any let's just jump straight in are you are you, uh, are you guys doing anything in cambridge with ai at the minute like is what's the plan so uh, we we are using machine learning we're using it, it in a couple of ways at the moment we o- over Probably the last few years, we've been looking at the data that we need as a city to be able to kind of make the right decisions, whether that's modeling, whether that's policy decisions, or, or actually whether it's um, evaluating you know, investments that we've made in, in infrastructure. And the, the data that we were collecting in the past generally never really gave us the information that we needed. So it would have been collected through things like loops in the roads, which, you know, gave you vehicle counts, but you couldn't really get a granular understanding of the different classifications of vehicles, of cyclists, of pedestrians, which is really important now because sustainable transport is the big thing. We want to get people cycling and walking. So we really need to understand how our investments are shifting those behaviours. We were using Bluetooth sensors. And I think this is quite an interesting kind of case study of, you know, technology promising something and completely under delivering. So uh, we invested in the Bluetooth network we were told that we would be able to uh, tell the difference between cyclists, pedestrians and vehicle, uh, you know, drivers uh, of private cars. And actually what the company was doing was looking at the bottom kind of 5% of trips. So as you went past one of the units, uh, it would, you know, record that you had been passed because it picked up your Bluetooth signature and then somewhere else in the network, it would then record that you'd gone past another unit and work out your journey time. And their assumption was that the bottom 5% of people were all cycling and walking because they were the slowest, you know, people traveling. And actually, you know, at that point, we had about a 40% mode share of cyclists and they were all traveling a lot quicker than car drivers because all the car drivers were queued up. So it was a completely false assumption. And actually the data that we were getting out of it just wasn't very good, wasn't very accurate. And then there are other ways that you can get data, mobile phone data. But again, doesn't really give you the modal split. So quite some time ago, we started working with a spin-out from the university called Vivacity, who use uh, low-resolution cameras, all on-edge kind of processing, uh, machine learning, and it identifies different things in the environment. So I think they're up to about 30 different classifications now. Cyclists, pedestrians, uh, it can tell cargo bikes. I think they're looking at e-scooters at the moment, different classifications of cars. And then it sends the data back you know, into the cloud and, and we can access that through a portal. So it gives us a much better understanding actually of who's there, who's in the, who's in the environment. So we are using uh, their machine learning. You know, so that's one kind of example of AI. And an extension of that, actually we're using their sensors to see if we can better uh, operate our traffic signals. So if you understand what vehicles and who is in the environment when you're looking down from a a traffic signal, actually, can you better manage uh, all those different actors within the environment? And, you know, depending on what your policy is at a junction, you might want to give um, extra time to cyclists, you might want to give extra time to pedestrians, or actually you might want to, you know, improve the flow of traffic through that junction. So it just gives you more options. And that's, a, you know, a, quite, a, I think, a practical application of AI that will hopefully make a difference to, to travellers in Cambridge. The second one is very similar. It's a company called Starling who are using 
the same low resolution cameras are on uh, crossings and they can see who's in the environment and who's approaching the crossing as well. So if there's somebody who has got a, you know, a kind of physical impairment, it might take them a long time to cross the road, we can actually change the crossing timings to make sure that they've got plenty of time to get across. If there's lots of people waiting, again, we can change the timings. Um, and then you, you you can do really clever things like if you had a sequence of junctions, you can begin to platoon passengers, oh, sorry, not passengers, but pedestrians, which might sound strange, but if you start to clump them together, you can actually get them through in a, on a green wave so they don't have to kind of stop. And, and that idea obviously improves walking and will, will you know, make being in the city and walking around the city a kind of a much more pleasant experience. So th those are two really, I think, relatively basic applications of machine learning, but that are making a real kind of difference. The third kind of area where we're really beginning to and have used uh, AI is in the application of automated vehicles as part of the public transport system. And we ran a pilot for about six weeks, uh, about a year and a half ago, and we're now part of a, a government-funded project, which will see a, a huge expansion of that uh, onto two sites in Cambridge. Uh, the, the plan is to have about 13 vehicles, and obviously they're really sophisticated. They do use machine learning to see what's in the environment, and they do use AI. And that's quite a challenge for us because they're, they're really sophisticated. Yeah, there's some great examples, I think, in Cambridge. And I think you, you guys have done a great job so far of, of being cautious, but yet using the technology that's available. Two things came out of, of those things that you were talking about that I do just want to point out quickly. Yeah, sure. One is we don't have any relationship with any of the products that we mentioned on the podcast. So <laughs> we're not, we're not supporting anyone. We're just talking about the, the tools that we use. So don't, don't worry about that. And the other one is maybe, and, and I know the answer to this, but it might be, might be good for you to point out is there's probably some people wondering, you know, you've talked about Bluetooth and you've talked about the, the Vivacity cameras and stuff. And it's like, Oh, okay. Well, what are they looking at and what are they recording? Can you talk a little bit about the type of data that's stored and more importantly, not stored from the cameras and those sorts of things, just so people can feel a little bit more okay about the fact that, that these cameras are in place? Yeah. So, I mean, this is, this is a real, you know, concern and, and kind of live issue for us actually about, you know, the, the cameras that we're using. So they are low resolution. Um, you, you can't really pick up you know somebody's face you just see objects in the in the in the environment all the processing happens on the edge um, and you know the machine learning algorithm will classify the objects and then the data is sent back and then the the video is destroyed so you know it's not it's not stored anywhere obviously cyber security is a real issue because we don't want people hacking into them and being able to use them um, in, in any way so we work quite closely with the companies um, we've also worked with the um, center for cyber security they they've got a, a smart places document which is really interesting and sets out you know how you can ensure that that you're cyber safe so you know we work with other agencies to make sure that we are you know we are secure that we're acting in a in, a, in an in an ethical manner and um, the one thing i would say though is though companies 
want to download some video so that they can train their models. And that's, you know, we we have discussions around that, about how that data is then used and actually at the end of it, how it's destroyed to make sure that, you know, it can't be used for any nefarious kind of activities. I think the, the, the two things to say there really are, we know that there are concerns and we, we're looking at ways that we can begin to engage with local communities and kind of draw them into conversations around this. We wanted, you know, we wanted everyone to know what we were doing. So we contacted the local paper and we ran a story saying we're working with a company who are using machine learning on the crossing. And, you know, what we're really trying to do is improve the, the public experience. So, you know, as a citizen in the, in the city, this is all about, you know, making things better for you. We thought that it would be a small little article on page eight, but actually they put it on the front cover of the local paper, AI Comes to Cambridge. Love it. Uh, yeah, so yes, it wasn't quite what we were expecting. But from that, and we don't know whether it's actually related to that or actually Cambridge has been going through a process of looking at congestion charge and whether people thought these were camera infrastructure that was being put in for, uh, for charging. But we have experienced vandalism. Interesting. Yeah, I know London has a has a particular problem with the uh, vandalism of the cameras at the minute around their uh, the expansion of the of the low emission zone, don't they? They it's, they do. Yeah, and it's quite an interesting challenge. You know, I, I I obviously I've done some work with you guys in the past, and and I've done some work with Oxfordshire County Council as well, and it's a really delicate balance, isn't it, between being able to get information. And data that you can use to make everybody's lives better, but then also maintaining that anonymity as well. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of rules around, you know, again, just for people listening, they're not taking your car reg number and they're not identifying what vehicle it is and they're not keeping that data. They literally just, the AI tools can do it just by looking at it. It can tell what type of vehicle it is, that sort of thing. It's not, there's no tracking or anything like that. Even though it's possible, it's not doing it. This is really the this is the crux of the issue, isn't it? And and the challenge from your side is, how do you? I guess you have to ask yourself, and we, you know, when we're working on those projects in the public sector, we have to say, okay, we really want to make people's lives better, but we have to be so careful and so transparent, you know. And and that's you know, we were talking about this a little bit earlier, and you know, how do you? It, it's ensuring that that transparency is there, that that. You know, data security is there; those sorts of things, and and that the the anonymity is being maintained on one level, but also at another level that there's enough there to identify something if you need to remove it, which is something that came up in a conversation yesterday, which I hadn't really thought about. But they said, you know, we have to we use these tools. We we have an AI tool. People talk to it, and I said, well, you know, these these are sensitive conversations. They need to remain anonymous, and blah blah blah. And he said, well, they do to it to a certain level, but then we also need to have enough to know that if they come back later and say, I want you to delete that conversation, I don't want anything about me in there that we can actually go and remove it. So yeah, it's, it's tricky, isn't it? It is. It is. I think the key thing for us is really understanding what the public value is of what we're doing and being able to articulate that up front. So, you know, there is there is a real reason why we're collecting this data and 
you know, at the end of it, we will deliver some sort of public value, whether that's improved transport modelling, which means that we make better investments, that the transport system, you know, works better, whether that's better traffic management or cycle pedestrian management, which makes the, the environment safer. I think, you know, having a really good idea of why it is we're doing what we're doing I think transparency is really important. So we have an open data platform and my my personal, I personally would want to see data opened up and made available to the public to be able to look at the data that we're collecting because, you know, I think it's public, it's public data. We're, you know, we're collecting data on people in the city so they should then be able to use that data. Uh, I think one of the issues for local authorities is that, you know, funding is short and there's always a temptation to think you can make money out of data. And, you know, so there are those conversations going on at the moment. But we do have a, an open data platform called Cambridge Insights and we've been putting the, the data uh, up until this point onto that platform. And the reason why I say up until this point is because we've greatly expanded the footprint of the sensor network and we've now got so much data that actually it's quite difficult to release it on that type of platform. And so we are working with another company uh, looking at automating the uploading onto a transport data platform. And then hopefully we'll be able to put an API on there so that people will be able to come and use it. My only concern with that is that's great if you're a data scientist or you work in a tech company, but you know, if you if you don't know how to use an API, how do you get that data? And actually then how do you analyze it and how do you draw, you know, some kind of intelligence out of it? So we've got to think about, you know, I need my next door neighbor to be able, if he wants to see how many cars are at the end of the road and wants to use the data, he needs to be able to do that easily. He's not going to go in through an API and put it into a tool that he can kind of do that. So thinking about that I think on the transparency front we've started to work with and one of the companies that we're working with is is going to be filling this in for us uh, we've been working and having some conversations with the Center for Data Ethics and Innovation and the Central uh, Digital and Data Office so both government uh, bodies and they've put together something called the Algorithmic Transparency Recording Standard uh, which is a record of algorithms that are being used in the public sector so it'll say why you're using it kind of what kind of algorithm it is um, how the data is processed and then that will be a public record so that anyone can kind of go and see it and, and, and really understand what you're doing so I think that's quite interesting and we haven't completed a record yet but you know we're hoping to get at least one of our schemes onto that register just to see how it works and then obviously we'll do that for, for kind of all all the schemes that we we do you know we we, we make sure that we're uh, complying with uh, data standards with GDPR so just to make sure that you know we we are being as transparent and ethical in in everything that we do as we we kind of can be nice I didn't even know about that the algorithm thing so that's quite interesting to know that that's there I saw a presentation by a lady from number 10, who's the head of data analytics for number 10. And she talked a lot about how the data tools that they use aren't so much a black box as a lot of the other ones, you know, chat GPT and a lot of the large language models, nobody really knows what happens. You put a query in and it gives you an answer and there's not really as, as far as anyone can tell any kind of a paper trail. Whereas the tools they use, they can 
ask it to do some sort of analysis on a piece of data and it comes back and it, it gives them the answer, but then it also shows all of its work as well. So if, if they need to go back and understand exactly how that algorithm worked, they can find that and see that afterwards, which I thought was really interesting. And I think that's something we're going to have to have across public sector. And, you know, if, if there are companies out there building AI tools for public sector, specifically for use in public sector, I think there's going to have to be much more of an audit trail that's available for exactly those reasons. And I'm, yeah, I'm totally, I didn't, I didn't even know that that was there. So that's really good to know. So I'll, I'll, I'll actually look that up for some of the stuff that I'm doing. That sounds really interesting. So David, do you, do you think that government will have narrow AI? Well, what I mean by that is a, you know, specific AIs for specific tasks instead of a kind of a general AI. Yeah. And I, I think at the minute, that's how I see AI in general. The market is splitting up already. I think there are, you know, I've mentioned this before, on, before but there are certain tools are better at certain things. Google Bard is very good at if you need to get current information up to almost today from live web, you know, websites and you want it to go and pull back data, do some analysis, and then also show you the references where it got that information it's the best tool to do that, which makes sense because Google has essentially, you know, the search map of the entire internet. And so applying the AI to that totally makes sense. You can't get that from ChatGPT. It's not, it's not how ChatGPT was trained and it's not what GPT is good at. ChatGPT is good at one thing. There's another one that I talk about all the time called Claude. Claude is amazing at other stuff like writing prose. So if you need to, I'm, I'm actually putting together a, a post to go on LinkedIn because I, I asked it something to help me write something the other day. And what it came back with was incredible. It was so good and so human. And it actually captured exactly what I was trying to say. And I was just looking for inspiration. I wasn't looking for it to kind of do it for me. I was looking for it to just help me. And I ended up using exactly what it said because it said exactly what I was feeling, which was really odd. So yeah, I, th I think we will, I think we will see specialist tools for different areas I also think that we'll see what we'll see is we'll get we'll get tools that will be trained only on that on the government data. So you might get, I don't know, an HMRC AI that will be trained on all of the laws and rules and regulations around tax and corporation tax and all the other stuff and anything that you could ever want to ask about tax. It will know inside and out. And so you'll be able to go to it, ask a question, and it will it will be able to give you an accurate answer because it isn't making anything up because it's only been trained on the actual data that's in there. And I think that's where it's going to be really important. And, and these tools are going to be different than the tools that you find on the open market because those tools are trained on everything. So, I mean, we, you know, we, we both worked in the local authority kind of sphere. And it, the thing that I wonder is going to be an issue is the actual background data that you train those models on because as you know the organizations haven't really been data driven up until recently you know we've only just really started to put in place a data strategy within the within the council um, and people haven't really thought of data as an asset and that you know it needs to be curated and so I think there's quite a lot of work that we need to do to ensure that that data is fit for purpose. Um, you know, we have to be really careful. I 
you know, in the transport sphere, it's it's not, you know, bias is something that we consider, but, you, you know, the types of data that we're collecting, I think it would be quite difficult to build kind of biases into that. But when you start getting into the health and social care area, obviously it's really, you know, you have to be really careful. We don't want to yeah. build bias into the, the, you know, the data sets that we'll be training on. And I just wonder whether we've got the the kind of, the skills that we need to be able to curate that data to understand, you know, the strengths and weaknesses of it and to be able to identify actually biases before we let AI anywhere near it. And then understanding what's a bias that we want versus what's a bias that we don't want. Yes. Because that's the trick, isn't it? You know, we want it to actively have a bias in one direction or another because maybe there's one group that you know we want to bolster one group and we don't want to you know we want to make sure that that uh, you know one group doesn't have too much of an advantage we want things to be equitable and so how do we do that in the tool but then our idea of equitable is different than you know someone else's idea of equitable and how do you how do you navigate that and that's the real that bleeds into the ethics and the and all of it I had a, a, a gentleman on not too long ago named Sharon Matthew and Sharon, you know, talked about ethics and the way he likes to think about it is the framework. It's more a framework, I think, in, in a way you look at each individual project that you're working on to try and understand, is this the right way to do this particular project? And, and you try and work it out, you know, at, at the time, each individual way. But it's a huge challenge. I mean, it's a huge challenge. And like, you know, working in public sector, you will never be right any of the time. <laughs> like, you can never make everybody happy. It's just, it's not going to happen and it's impossible. And it, this actually, thinking about that makes me want to go back to something you talked about earlier, which was the sort of the autonomous vehicle trials. How are those going in Cambridge? Because I've seen a lot of press in other cities where people are like really not happy with them and they use orange cones to like block them in so that they can't drive and stuff like that. So I'm curious about what's, what's the, you know, how the, what's the reception been like? How, how have people felt about it? So obviously people have concerns. The most important thing for us is safety. So the, the trial that we ran previously, we spent, you know, considering we ran for two months and that, and actually that was foreshortened because of COVID, we were planning to run for six months, but there was a two and a half year run up to that. And a, a lot of that was, you know, doing safety cases, making sure that the vehicle was safe, making sure that the, 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 the environment was safe in which it would be running, um, you know, doing some, uh, some kind of testing as well, working with the company to really understand what their processes were. So it got a really, a really good reception from the public who used it. Uh, we did we did some survey work. We asked people what they thought of the experience, um, and generally really positive. Um, but it was a very small trial. This is going to be a much bigger trial to ensure safety. You know, I, I think again we talk about skills within the local authority. We we don't have the skills to be able to properly audit and understand what's going on on that vehicle. So we have specialist companies who uh, who work in that area who are helping us um, and who will you know testing their the the systems will be on the vehicle in a virtual environment before we move out into the physical environment. We'll be doing safety cases. 
The government has a program called CavPass they'll be working with as well. So doing everything that we can to make sure that vehicles run safely. But there are always going to be people who worry about having vehicles without a driver. And I think the thing to say at the moment, the legislative framework that we're operating in, there will be a safety driver in it. Uh, if we take the safety driver out, it will be remote operations. And there is a question about reaction time with remote operations and how quickly you can kind of, you know, take over the vehicle. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of work going on to kind of understand that and to put kind of mitigations in place to make sure that, that it, it's safely running. So in the trial, from what we understand, the the kind of, you know, the, the amount of time it's going to take to get new legislation through, it's unlikely that we will be running fully autonomously. But what we really want to do is engage the public to find out whether these vehicles actually really have a use, whether they would use them, how safe they would feel. Things like if you're using an on-demand automated shuttle and it's late at night as a you know woman, would you feel safe getting on one? Would you feel safe sharing one? Uh, how do you protect revenues? How do you do ticketing? Kind of all that stuff will be will be explore, exploring. And CCAV did a, a really great piece of work on human factors where they went around to a number of places that traditionally haven't been involved in any of the automated vehicle work. They took a vehicle. They did a lot of work with local communities to try and, you know, understand how they perceive the vehicles, whether they would use them. And, and that was pretty positive as well. So, you know, I think we need to bring those communities along with us. We need to, and I've talked a bit about public value. I think that's really important. We need to get people to understand what the public value of these vehicles are. And, you know, we are really thinking about public transport applications. So, It'll be a long time, I think, before your number five bus that runs, you know, every 10 minutes will be automated. I think initially we'll see these vehicles in kind of edge cases running on demand overnight, uh, first last mile. Um, I think there are some other potential applications joining campuses up to um, to railway stations. So, you know, I think it's going to be a, a slow evolution. But, you know, we we, we need to sell the you know, the, the kind of benefits of this to communities. I think where it gets harder in an area that we certainly, we're not going to get involved in, I don't think, is the shared taxi space, which is what you kind of see in, in the States and a lot of the, you know, Waymo kind of demonstrators. It's either private car or it's shared cars. And yeah, at the moment, that's not a space that we that we want to be in. Yeah. So how long have you been, when was your first CAV discussion how many years ago was that 2016 was the initial discussion one of the great things as you know david being in cambridge is that it is full of technologists you know most of them sane some of them completely yeah. nuts <laughs> yeah and so you know we we were approached by uh, somebody who was thinking about this who said Right, you've got this guided busway, it's segregated, you know, why don't we use that as a test track for, or, or, you know, automated vehicles? And actually, you know, there, there weren't really many around at that point. But we we then found someone who was, you know, quite well keyed into this world, uh, a professor at the university. We did a, a piece of, of work looking at the guided busway. And then from there, we built, uh, we did, we've done two 
And this is our third government-funded project. We've done work looking at, you know, how humans interact with vehicles. We've looked at opportunities. We've got an automated vehicle strategy, which kind of sets out the advantages, the benefits, um, and then, you know, potentially some of the sites that we could run on. So it's it's been a long evolution and kind of journey. Again, you know, sometimes I think, these are really have the potential to revolutionize transport, particularly rural transport. So you take the driver out, electric vehicle, reduce the operating costs. You know, can you make them commercially viable, which normal bus services aren't in rural areas? And, and is that a really big opportunity? And then other times I just think, I don't know. <laughs> Why are we doing this? <laughs> but I, I think, you know, I think it's a, it would be a valid response from us as a local authority to get to the end of this process and say, actually, there's nothing in this and we've tried it. But what I'm hoping is that we'll find some real use cases which will add value to, to the public. But, you know. Yeah, it's 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 a really interesting one, in particular autonomous vehicles. And there, there's a specific reason that I actually, I know it's slightly off, seems like it's slightly off the AI topic, and I do want to bring it back around because I think there's a point there. But while you were talking, I actually just had a quick nosy around on, on Google. And of course, this is from Waymo. So they would say this, but their data, their insurance data reveals there's a 100% reduction in the frequency of bodily injury claims and a 76% decrease in property damage claims by autonomous vehicles as opposed to human drivers, Mm -hmm. which is a really interesting stat. So I've always thought that if we could get to the point where we had, you know, a, a certain, almost a tipping point with autonomous vehicles that... You know, we would see an enormous reduction in the total number of accidents and everything else. And, but what's interesting is, is that I think people push back and they really don't want it. So we are seeing that in San Francisco. A lot of people are, like I said, you know, they're, they're blocking the cars. They're stopping them from operating. We've, you know, they already drive you know, 20 miles an hour anyway, which is nobody wants to use them because they're so slow that they're almost impractical to use. You had Toronto, you know, famously tried to do their, you know, their their project with, I think it was with Google and they were yeah. going to do some smart buildings and, and sort of, you know, rejuvenate the, I think the docks area downtown or something. And basically everybody kicked off and went, no, we don't want all the sensors. We don't want all that stuff. So there's a huge, there's still a lot of, there's a lot of work that we have to do, I think, as as you know, people who work in public sector and and really trying to help people understand what this technology does and what it doesn't do. So the tie-in that I've been trying to get to is that you know you've been working on this what eight, seven, eight years now. Yeah. It's it's not really. I mean, in a way, it has progressed quite far, but in another way, it's not progressed as far as you might have thought. Uh, you know, as, as certainly as quickly as most other technology. So I suspect, and I'll be interested to get your thoughts, but I suspect we're going to see the same thing in AI. Everybody's talking about it. It's captured everybody's imagination. Yes, in some industries, it's making a huge difference. But in public sector, it's probably going to be decades before we actually see any real use of it. Is that what, do you agree? I, 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 I do. I think... Yeah, and and I talked earlier about, you know, I've seen a number of kind of hype curves and 
you know, if we take like the Internet of Things, when I when I first started in this kind of area of looking at, you know, the application of technology in kind of urban spaces, you know, like eight, nine years ago, IoT was the big thing. It was going to transform everything and everything would be connected to the Internet. Sensors would talk to each other and would be able to pull data together and give you new and exciting insights. And it would change the way that we delivered services in cities. And actually what's happened is we've got some really good use cases for IoT, whether that's measuring movement, air quality, or, you know, it can be silt build up in drains, all that sort of thing. But they're very siloed and it's not the, the kind of the original vision for IoT. It's just practical applications of technology that, you know, create savings make it easier for people to do their jobs. And I think that's what will happen with the AI. The, you know, within the, within the public sector, there's a promise that, you know, it, it will change everything. And actually, it may just, you know, change little bits of the organisation in those kind of little silos that we've kind of talked about. I mean, I might be wrong. Do you, do you think that that, I mean, cities like Cambridge have massive problems because you're a very historic city, Right. And you've got lots of buildings and things that are preserved and, you know, you, you can't do this and you can't do that because of planning regulations and everything else. Is, do you see that as a particular challenge? Do you think that's slowing it down in, in Cambridge maybe more than other places? Or do you think it's just the same thing that everybody's seeing everywhere? Doing things in Cambridge is hard. Uh, you know, we, as you know, we've got a crazy governance system with you know, three layers of government and and the body that I'm part of kind of, you know, delivering, which makes decision-making difficult. The historic nature of the city does make it difficult to trial things. You know, that that's why people use Milton Keynes. There's plenty of space, particularly for automated vehicles. But actually, when you look across Europe, most cities are like Cambridge, you know, his, the historic core, and then you might have, you know, modern kind of development around it, you know, campuses and, and kind of business parks and that sort of thing. So I think Cambridge is a really good place to, to test because, you know, it is like a, a, a lot of other kind of cities. The one thing that we find quite difficult actually is a lot of space in cities is private. You know, our lighting uh, infrastructure falls under a PFI, so effectively it's operated by somebody else. Um, and just deploying stuff into the environment is difficult. There are, once you get into the centre, there's conservation areas and there's concerns about visual impact, of course, you know, completely understand that. Planning is, you know, is difficult. We've been working with, um, you know, a telecoms provider who wants to put small cells on streetlights you know because we don't own the streetlights the actual contract says you can't put telecommunications equipment on it then there's you know everyone's worried about the visual impact and so it it just it does make things really difficult Uh, i think where technology really helps where you've got uh, a historic city with a really kind of tight street pattern is that it, it gives you opportunities to optimize, you know, optimize flows of whether it's cyclists, pedestrians, whether it's cars or, you know, whatever it is you're optimizing. So you're squeezing the most out of this very tight, you know, uh, road pattern because you can't build your way out of it. So you've got to do other things. I mean, and the other thing is obviously Cambridge is the UK's capital of AI and, you know, all things tech. So uh, it it has been amazing. It's got a great 
a really great network because you know you know you can go to an event you end up sitting next to somebody who's like a world leading expert on ai and everyone is so generous with their time and they'll talk to you and you you know you can have some really interesting conversations so it, it's a great place to do this stuff and we should be doing it in cambridge and actually the reason why we set up the, the program in the first place is like we've got the university doing great research on, you know, urban technologies. We've got all these companies doing this amazing stuff and they all go off and test it in America or, you know, somewhere else. Why aren't they testing it on their doorstep? Because of all the reasons you just mentioned. <laughs> That's right. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> OK, so let's let's change tack a little bit. So taking all that into account. What are the cool technologies that you see coming? Have you seen anything recently that you think, wow, that's actually pretty interesting and I'd, I'd like to see that or something that you think would be really helpful or useful, particularly for, you know, maybe a public sector, like a local government to try and use to, to do something really good for the for the people? So we just recently, uh, like over uh, Christmas last year and kind of early into this year ran a big consultation around the congestion charge and there was about 23,000 responses I think it might be more than that but a, a lot of responses you know one of the biggest kind of consultations that we've done in a long time a, a lot of free text boxes um, which you know in a traditional way you need to go through code the responses then you know work out who said kind of what and it's a long long process and you know out to the end of it you kind of get a report but it's months and really expensive well one of the things that we and we couldn't have done it this time because we just weren't set up but one of the things that we had some conversations with people around was using natural language processing potentially in the future to be able to quickly you know analyze consultation responses so i know that doesn't sound particularly exciting but i think you know that can make consultations much more responsive you know shorten the time between getting the you know getting the um, responses and actually being able to put together an action plan and, and kind of deciding what you're doing. So that, that, that's quite interesting. We, there was a conversation uh, that I was having with someone the other day about our complex or, you know, governance rich environment that we're, we're kind of in and that residents really don't know who to talk to. Uh, you know, who does their bins? Who's responsible for potholes? Who's responsible for roads? Who's, who, you know, who do I talk to? What are the rules? And, and actually, if I wanted to do something in my neighborhood, how do I do that? Um, and, you know, I, I think we kind of, it's so complex. People feel that they can't intervene and do interesting things in their, in their kind of local areas. You know, it, could, could we have a single front end that uses AI to effectively crawl different organizations? So you ask it a question, you know, I want to put a uh, planter outside my house, you know, in a parking bay. How do I do that? And then, you know, it effectively gives you a response which says, right, th this is the rules. This is how you do it. This is who you need to contact. This is the form that you need to fill in or whatever it is just to really ease the friction, you know, that people experience and the frustrations of kind of working with government. So I think that would be that would be really interesting. You know, I think we're more and more we're going to see machine learning, um, you know, in, in some of the kind of tasks that we do. And uh, there's a really interesting company that uses it for waste, for sorting waste. And I think, you know, the big challenge for councils at the moment is, you know, the pathway to net zero. And I think there are going to be huge applications for AI in the way that we build 
manage kind of energy systems, manage the interaction between the energy system and things like vehicles where you can use cars or buses as batteries, you know, effectively. And, and you take a, a much more kind of a much more holistic approach to the way that you plan infrastructure. And kind of off the back of that, what's really interesting is we, we've done some work around digital twins with the university and being able to bring lots of different systems, city systems, whether that's water, power, you know, the transport system together into one model so that you can really understand the interrelationships, I think really opens up the, the, the kind of possibilities for the way that you plan and deploy infrastructure and more importantly, the way that you understand risk. So actually, you know, if I understand that it's you know that there is a risk of flooding and you know we understand from the the sensors that we've deployed and the patterns that we're seeing that actually there's going to be a flooding event and we understand the interrelationships between flooding and the potential failure of the power network and then the impact that that will have on the transport system because we've electrified it and all of a sudden there's no power, then that allows you to kind of put in place mitigations and really be able to plan in a, in a kind of a much more holistic manner. And I think with climate change, we're really going to need to do that to understand you know, much more about how these systems relate to each other. And building on your example, I think there's some really good, again, shout out to, to a particular company, but I think BlackBerry who who actually still does mobile, even though no one would know it. But they do a lot of things around, you know, sort of blue light services and those sorts of things around if there is a flood, they're using AI in the background or, or, or some machine learning tools to actually know who are the right people to notify at the right time and who to reach out to for this particular thing because it involves these, you know, like, I don't know if you saw the other day, but one of the, there was like a recycling plant or something in Oxford that got hit by lightning and there was a massive explosion. And in an instance like that, you know, you need to know, A, there's been an explosion and B, what was it, right? Was it a hazardous chemical? And if it was, are there certain people that need to be notified over other people because, you know, they're qualified to deal with that sort of emergency? You know, do you need certain things to send to emergency services? All that sort of stuff. And traditionally, that's been done manually. Right? Like, you know, somebody, literally somebody calls the fire department and says, "Um, by the way... (laughs) If you haven't seen it, this huge thing has exploded, you know, next to my house, you might want to come and take a look. And then they get there and they have to figure out what is this thing? What is this material? And and there's all this delay. And, you know, that thing could be burning for 10 or 20 minutes before they even figure out what it is. Whereas now all of that stuff, you know, the instantaneous almost response to those sorts of incidents, I think is is another way that it could be used, you know, that people don't. It sort of just happens in the background and people don't really think about like how do the police talk to the fire department and mm. how do they talk to hazardous materials people and all sorts of stuff. So, yeah, there's all sorts of, you know, kind of, I would say, hidden ways that tools like that can be used to to really help. And, and even the smallest things for people, you know, like like you said, you know, and, and I've talked about this before is. If you call up the council and you need to get a parking permit and they say, well, you have to prove where you live and you go, but I pay council tax. And it's like, why can't you take my council tax record? Because I pay for that, you know, for the house. And they go, oh, no, I can't see that information. It's like, well, well, why not? And that was all from a an old thing where one one team couldn't see the data from another team. But now that they're now that we have the ability for an AI tool to maybe sit on top of that then it should have the ability to dip in and out of those different things because it's not a person that's looking at the data. So you could have those automated tools that are smart enough 
to be able to interpret the data that it's seeing and to kind of keep everything up to date without an, any single individual being able to access it. So, you know, we, we are, and I, I don't want to speak for you, but I think we're, you know, techno optimists. And when we see, you know, real value and and kind of in how these, these technologies can be used to improve things. But in my experience, you know, it's it's really difficult in the public sector and it moves so slowly. How do you think we can get from where we are to a point where we're really harnessing AI for good and doing the things that kind of you're talking about and, you, you know, that I've talked about and it, it becomes embedded in, in our kind of day-to-day processes? What do you kind of think needs to happen to to get to that point? It's a great question. I think I think we need to start small and we just need to build one example at a time and we need to start with the small stuff and it's not going to be hugely important but we have to build trust and we the only way we can do that is by showing successful tools along the way with you know it starts off with things that maybe aren't that or seemingly aren't that important but in your example like being able to to actually have a useful chatbot that you could talk to that you could go and ask questions and it would interact with you like a real human would and it would understand like a real human would that would be a major success for most people because at the minute the limiting factor is you ask it a question and half the time it just it's a very blunt instrument and if we can if we can just do little examples along the way and and start to test it you know it's the same thing it's it goes back to the example of autonomous vehicles they all drive at 20 miles an hour at the minute because everybody's so worried that if it drives at 30 or 40 miles an hour that something tragic is going to happen it's probably not but everybody's like overly cautious mm. and everybody's overly cautious at the minute with ai i think and because nobody wants to be the one to have something major happen right like nobody wants that on their head so I agree with you. It's going to take a long time. I think something else that you've you know talked about earlier is, is is not only are people going to have to trust the AI, but we're going to have to have access to the data so that the AI can make a better decision. And I think we need to do a lot of work around helping people understand how AI uses data that it finds and how that then either gets used in models or not. And, you know, really digging into that and understanding that and helping people be comfortable with how that works. And us as technologists being comfortable with how that works as well. And I think it's just going to be a slow process, but slow, not in the, you know, 100-year time frame slow. It's going to be slow in the in the new world slow, which is 10 or 15 years. And I, But I think... It's going to be that hockey stick, right? It's going to be nothing, 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 a little bit, a little bit. And then all of a sudden, everybody's going to realize that actually it's okay. And then it's just going to go off the scale. And, and you know, that it, that's the only way I see it working in public sector anyway. I think we'll see it. It'll work totally differently in the private sector. But in public sector, we, we really do have to just build up trust, not only with the, the citizens, but also with the people in the public sector, and they have to get trained up and, and we're going to have to do a massive, you know, you mentioned this earlier, but we're going to have to skill up everybody. And I don't, I don't know how that's a bigger question. How do you skill up everybody to yeah. <laughs> to be able to understand what the tools are doing and, and you know, how to how to use them? And, and I, I think one of the things that we've thought about is. When we're doing IoT deployments, particularly in sensors, you know, when we're deploying a sensor, you know, the person that we want using that sensor and the data 
isn't a data scientist. It's a road operative who needs to clean, know when to clean a, you know, a drain or something. So you need to make that process as easy as possible. You know, if they're deploying the sense, they just need to be able to pull out a tab and stick it onto something and the data starts flowing and, you know, they get an alert on a mobile phone when they need to go and, and kind of use it. And I think there are, you know, the, so there are going to be two types of users within the local authority. Ones that I just think, you know, the best way in the world are never going to be, you know, digitally savvy enough to be able to really use kind of AI understand the implications and that sort of thing but but actually having those tools is going to be really useful and then you know your kind of IT tech people who you know really need to have a really deep understanding and need to help and support those people in the, in the way that they kind of you know bring it in and it's just how you kind of bridge that gap I think how do you move from IT services to digital services and what i mean by that is it services at the moment put microsoft 365 on your laptop give you two screens you know set set you up on the network whatever it is but this is much more i mean this is a big breadth of technology potentially that you're kind of you know putting in place and they need to have a a much greater understanding of a range of things which i think the skills just aren't there and and i i I just don't know how you upskill your workforce meaningfully because there's so much to do and i don't i don't think anybody does at the minute and i think that's one of the big you know certainly that's one of the big questions i mean education is changing wholesale you know this is going to have a an enormous impact on education how students learn at what access to information they have how they're tested it's it's really you know and i've i've had several you know, sort of conversations about education already. I did the career day, the careers day with your, with your friend the other day. And, you know, some of the kids are using AI in amazing ways already, you know, which was genius and, you know, using it to, to prepare for their exams. And they, you know, one of the kids for people outside the, I think I've talked about GCSEs before, but it's sort of like your high school finals, but it's a standardized test everybody takes in the UK, but they're all written answers. And so the thing is, is you can actually put the question in as a student, you can put the question in, you can put your answer in, and then you can ask it to grade it using the grading rules that they would use for that exam and say, you know, suggest how I could improve this answer and, you know, those sorts of things. And it literally like chat GPT will go away and it'll come back and it will grade your answer and it will give you strategies and tips on how to write a better answer. That's genius. Like we never had, you know, no, no students have ever had the ability to do that. It's always been, you know, you took a mock exam and then your teachers graded it and kind of gave you an idea of what they thought. Now you can practice that answer a hundred times every day if you want to. And it's, it, it's going to, it's going to change everything. It will do. And I think some people naturally jump to, well, we should ban the use of AI tools in schools, but I, I, I definitely don't think that's the right thing to do. I think we ought to be teaching children how to harness them uh, to enhance their kind of learning experience. But, you know, one of the things that really concerns me is the use of AI and misinformation, particularly on social media. And, you know, we need to we need to teach children to think critically about the things that they're seeing, to understand, you know, how AI can generate images and, uh, you know, text and to really, you know, 
drill down and try and understand whether the thing they're seeing is real or whether it's being you know generated for some other reason and that kind of critical thinking i think really needs to be embedded in schools because that's you know going to be a really important skill totally agree and i know they're doing it in finland so that's part of the curriculum already is for them to understand how to interpret analyze and interpret information that they see online to make some sort of a value judgment about whether they think it's reliable or not and specifically, this is for people outside the UK, you probably don't know about this. And, and Dan, I don't even know if you know about this, but there's been this big storm over some a recording that was allegedly over Keir Starmer, who's the leader of the Labour Party. And it's supposed to be a you know recording of him swearing at some aides and, and generally being rude. And what's really interesting is it's been analyzed by about 20 different people and everybody that's come back have said that they, they all think that it's a fake recording. And they've used all the, you know, sort of audio analysis tools. And at, like, it's been the most analyzed piece of probably sound ever uh, so far. But it's a great point. And, and, you know, we're getting to the point where it's going to be, I, I think this will probably be the last election that we'll be able to rely on most of the information that we see. I think next time elections come around in, in certainly in the UK and the US, because we're kind of along on the same election cycles now. I don't think next time we're going to be able to rely on any of it because we just won't know what's real unless we see it with our own eyes. We're we we're going to have to just assume that, you know, if it's anything that's even slightly outrageous, we're going to just have to assume that it's fake, which is, which is terrible because maybe they are actually being totally outrageous and we should believe that. But we are rapidly approaching a post-truth world, I guess, is, uh, is what they call it. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I don't know. It's It's... Yeah, it's sorry, really concerning. Ahead. I mean, it is it, it is really concerning. Um, there will always be bad actors who use you know technologies to disrupt elections, and but yeah, I'm conscious of time. I know I said I would tell you at 45 minutes, and we're now at an hour because <laughs> I completely missed it. So um, we probably should think about winding up. I mean, I don't mind. We can talk if you you know I've got, we can do a Joe Rogan and go three hours if you want to, <laughs> uh, but. Uh, so thinking about that, then that's an excellent segue, though, into, you know, I talk a lot about and talk to people about, you know, what's your version of the future? You know, are you a are you a Star Trek kind of guy where you think of ultimately that this, even though we may have some growing pains along the way, we're going to end up in a more of a utopian type society where everything's going to be great? Or, you know, are we going to go down the Mad Max road where it's all, you know, take, we're just going to end up with no technology, but we're going to take, you know, a step back about 300 years. And then I've had loads of people in, interject all sorts of variations in the middle. So you've got the sort of the she slash AI world, you've got Dune, you've got cyberpunk, you've got all those different kind of dystopian kind of bits in the middle. Where where do you think we're going to fall? God. You know, I'd like to be really optimistic and think it's going to, you know, it, it's going to be we're heading towards utopia. But I really, I really worry about the future. I, you know, and I don't think it's just technology. Obviously, it's, you know, things like climate change. And, you know, so so there's some big kind of existential things in the background that that hopefully technology will, you know, will come and save the day but I've, I've just seen too much hype in the tech space and so I, 
you know, I'd probably take a middle ground. I think, you know, technology will play a, a, a key role in, you know, in helping to, you know, address things like climate change. And, you know, we're seeing some amazing kind of innovations in, you know, in the renewable energy space and, you know, kind of all that sort of thing. So I think half of my glass is full with that, but the other half is empty with, you know, disinformation undermining democracy I, I don't think ai is going to run away and kind of kill us all but you know i think it it could be applied in a way that really does some serious damage to society i think at some point we need to decide actually what are the important things for us as a human and you know, we know what they are. It's not technology, it's friends and it's family and it's, you know, living somewhere that you feel safe and secure and you've got food and you've got water and, you know, electricity and, you know, all that kind of good stuff and you lead a good life. And, you know, if technology isn't helping and supporting that, then what's it for? Exactly. Exactly. Okay. I, you know, you and I have talked about this before, so I, I broadly agree with you. I think the risk is always people. And I think if if AI is – if we are going to end up in a bad place from it, I think it will be from the socioeconomic fallout of having AI tools and things moving really quickly that we're not prepared for as a society. And I think they'll – you know, there's potentially some fallout around that, and that's where the trouble will come. It won't come from AI directly. I don't, I don't think AI will try and kill us, although some people do, and that's fine, and I respect that. Yeah. So is AI male or female? Wow. So that's a, an interesting question and one that I've obviously heard discussed on your podcast before. And my natural instinct is that it's female. And I've really had to kind of question myself about why is it because I'm telling it what to do? And is that entrenched sexism in my, <laughs> you know, in my personality? Um, yeah, I, it's just the way that I kind of initially, you know, when I initially thought, thought about it, it, it just female popped into my head but i, yeah. I don't know why yeah. and so you know I, could be because it gives excellent advice well, well that's, that's right that's right. right because it's trustworthy <laughs> it's always right exactly and, that's uh, right yeah 100 no I, I and again you know i talk about it a lot and i i love this question and i ask it to everybody all the time and i do think though that that sci science fiction has a lot to do with it because it's always been presented to us as female as a society, mm, just in yeah. films and everything. So, you know, a lot of women think it's it's female as well. So, and the male ones have generally tended to be evil. You know, you've got 2001, it kills everybody. And, you know, you've got Terminator runs around and, you know, those sorts of things. So I, th I think that is skewing it a little bit, but it's interesting. And so I know, you know, I ask these questions. So what, what are you going to name it then when you have your personal assistant? Well... I mean, it, you know, I'd probably go for something like Kylie because what could be better than chatting to Kylie every day? <laughs> awesome. Love it. I'm sure that won't get you in trouble at all. <laughs> Excellent. Anything else for anything else? Is there anything else you, you think that you wanted to touch on that maybe we didn't, we haven't talked about so far? Or Well, we could probably have, sit here and chat for the next week about this we can and i know I, we can I, I think i think you know that that's probably everything today so yeah just thanks very much for having me on and you know it's it's such a 
a fascinating area and I do think that, that you know from a public sector perspective there are, are some real opportunities here and we've just got to keep talking to you know people who are doing research and other and businesses companies people are really embedded in the AI world to really understand you know both the opportunities but also the pitfalls excellent Dan, thanks for your time today. I'm glad you came on. I suspect that we will probably have more conversations in the future. And you're welcome to come on anytime if you, if you have something in particular that you that's really bugging you or or that you really want to talk about and uh, and bring to light. Let me know. I'm happy to have you back anytime. That's a dangerous invitation, but yes. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Dan. Listen, that's great. Have a good Thank afternoon. Thank you much, David. Cheers. Bye. Bye. The Creatives with AI Podcast, the spiritual home of creatives curious about AI and its role in their future.